El Fanboy, episode 31. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 31st edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How the hell is everybody doing today? Hope you guys are staying uh, safe. I know that freaking every other day there's a new Category 5 hurricane making its way down there south somewhere. So if you're listening to this in Puerto Rico or anywhere else in the Caribbean, I hope you guys are staying safe and dry inside, that you have ample supplies and, and, and everything that you need, because it is an unbelievable time to be alive down there in terms of uh, natural disasters. Even over on the West Coast, there was an earthquake this morning. Like, what the hell is going on? Is Mother Earth trying to tell us something? Um, yeah, I don't know how you guys are doing on the uh, entertainment spectrum, Right now, it's still sort of slim pickings and theaters. Things are about to pick up. But aside from it, uh, there's not a lot to talk about in terms of movies that are currently out. You know, the, the other big release this weekend was Mother, and we're going to get into all that when we get into the box office. But, you know, I have not gotten to a movie. I realized this yesterday. I have not gotten to a movie in over a month, which is insane for me. Um, yeah, uh, some of it's been scheduling. Some of it's been the fact that, you know, my wife is busy. Uh, she's doing a show. So a lot of the times when during the week when I would typically go, she's at rehearsal or she has a performance and whatnot. But also, you know, there just hasn't been a lot of great movies that are where I'm like, I, I have to go see it. Right now, the top of my list is it, but I'm still unable to see it because my wife won't let me. Uh, I have to see it with her, so until her schedule clears up, I just have to stand on the sidelines hearing about how well it's doing and all the records it's breaking and how awesome it supposedly is and how it uh, excels in certain areas and apparently disappoints in others, but all I, all I can really count on is what people are telling me. I can't see the damn thing yet, and I don't know when or if that's ever going to change, but... um. Yeah, you know, last night I was going to try to get to the movies, but I just did not get a chance. So for those of you who are chatting up with me on Twitter, uh, I know I was I was mulling over seeing Wind River or um, Logan Lucky, and I wound up not seeing either because I was just beat. Because on top of it all, my wife is not only busy, but she's injured in the middle of all this stuff she's doing. She pinched a nerve in her neck. And it has led to some very long nights for us where I have to wake up in the middle of the night and give her these massages and stuff because she's in a lot of pain. So yesterday I was fried, 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 fried. And I was going to, you know, force myself out the door to see a movie and I just couldn't do it. Um, in terms of what I, entertainment I have been ingesting, let's see. I've, uh, I started Narcos Season 3. Uh, I only saw the first episode. Uh, I plan on continuing, but I just uh, I have not gotten around to continuing past episode one. Um, I got to tell you, I do not miss Boyd Holbrook. I thought I would. You know, when I initially heard he was not going to be returning 
that was a bummer for me. I really enjoyed him in Logan, and then I discovered Narcos, and you know, I, I when I heard he was not returning for season three, that was quite a blow. But I find that Pe- Pedro Pascal is such a cool motherfucker, and his Javier Peña really was like the star of the show. It's interesting how how things sort of panned out. If you really sort of go back and think about it in seasons one and two, you know, they ca- they came in hard and fast with, with Holbrook's character, and they sort of set him up to be the protagonist. But really, if you think about it, past those first five or six episodes, past the first half of season one, he really didn't have much to do. He was just sort of generic white guy who's there to try to do some good. <laughs> didn't really have much of an arc, didn't have a lot going for him. The real meat and potatoes of the story was Peñan and his dealings with Los Pepes and all the stuff that he was willing to do to try to, you know, put his career on the line and everything to try and bring Escobar to justice. So having Peña you know, suddenly just sort of step in and become the voice of the series, uh, it worked seamlessly and I, I do not miss Holberg's character. Uh, I do have to admit something. My hype for Narcos is not what it was a few months ago. Uh, for those of you who, who've been listening for a bit, you know, when I finally discovered Narcos this past summer, it was like a revelation for me. I loved it. I binged those first two seasons. I was very, very uh, hung up on that show. Um, but here's what happened. So for me, whenever I, I, I watch something that has to do with a true story or true crime and all this sort of stuff, I have a tendency to wait until it's over before I do any research. I don't want to sort of like spoil myself uh, in terms of whatever the true life story is, because, you know, when you're based when you're basing things on fact, you know, the, the the spoilers are out there because it really happens. So if you Google, you know, Escobar, you'll find out what happened to Escobar and then that'll spoil Narcos for you, for example. So I purposely stayed away from trying to discover anything because believe it or not, I didn't know a lot about the Escobar uh, story. You know, growing up, I was sort of, I heard little snippets here and there, but I, I, I didn't even know that he died. I didn't know if he was in prison. To a certain extent, I, 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 I'm not sure that I knew that Escobar and El Chapo were different people. Like, you know, like that's just not my world. So when I was watching the series, I was very careful to like not look up the real story because I didn't want to know anything to make sure everything was as fresh and as surprising as possible. And I do the same thing when I listen to podcasts. You know, I listen to a ton of true crime podcasts. And even if they're like a multi-part series that I have to wait a month to hear in its entirety because, you know, part one comes out one week and then another week and then another week, I will purposely just stay away for that entire month until that little arc is over before I go and, and look up pictures of the people involved look up, you know, other perspectives on the crimes that occurred. So with Narcos, I waited anxiously for season two to finally come to a close. Uh, Escobar, I you know, someone had spoiled for me that he died. So I, I was like, all right, so when season two is over, I will finally look into this Escobar situation and, and see how, um, you know, how accurate the series was. And when I did that, it kind of hurt the series for me because it was then that I discovered how many liberties had been taken, 
how many characters had been manufactured, how the timelines had been altered to make it more cinematic, quote-unquote. And in all honesty, you know, it's still a riveting series, um, but a big part of what got me all hyped about it was the feeling that it was ripped from the headlines. You know, the, the, the show has a great storytelling conceit where they go in and out from, like, their footage to actual archival news footage. And they kind of do it seamlessly so you realize, like, oh, wow, so this is really, like, you know, we're watching a dramatization of what happened at that time. You know, it's very exciting. So I was loving that feeling of, like, this is almost like a, like a documentary. But then reading, you know, reading up after the season two had ended, I realized, oh, no, they took a lot of liberties. A lot of this is them just sort of assuming what they think might have happened. A lot of this is like, you know, this is not necessarily accurate. And that, you know, that, 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 that lowered my internal hype uh, by a good, I don't know, 50%. That said... Uh, I'm going to continue with the series because, you know, I love Pascal and I like the world that they've set up there. And, uh, you know, it's a good show. So I'll just try to enjoy it as a show. Um, the only other entertainment I've been giving myself to is just in, in video games. Uh, for some reason, I've fallen into a, a WWE hole <laughs> where I've been playing last year's game, uh, 2K17, like every day. Just uh, basically creating my own storylines. I, I created a character and I'm doing the career mode. And for some reason, that's been an enormous time suck for me. And it's not even that good. It's very repetitious. But the old wrestling fan in me, the old teenager, the, the, the middle schooler in me that was obsessed with that shit uh, is having some fun building up my character and all that sort of stuff. But really, you know, I haven't been, uh, haven't been to the movies in over a month. And there's not a lot of television that I've been treating myself towards, too. Uh, keep, people keep telling me I need to check out um, The Confession Tapes, which is a true crime documentary on Netflix. So I definitely want to check that out. I've been hearing an awful lot about BoJack Horseman lately. So I feel like I, I owe it to myself to check that out based on some of what I've heard. But really, my life has been video games and podcasts. The bulk of my free time has been spent listening to old WTF podcasts, basically finding interviews between Mark Marin and comedians and actors that I really respect and spending hours upon hours listening to those conversations. I've also been dabbling in Howard Stern interviews with other comedians and actors that I, I respect. I find that I'm just really interested in, in getting to know and, uh, you know, understand that a more fundamental level, the, the, the psyches and minds and experiences of the artists and creators that I love so much. Um, and, and also lots of stand-up comedy. I've been listening to lots of stand-up. I love me some stand-up. And uh, I've been gorging on all kinds of things lately in that regard. But um, while we're on the subject, you know, I brought up creators and, and, and ways I've been spending my time. I did finally start my script. Um, I'm basically working on something. Uh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to reveal story details yet, but just to sort of give you an idea of where what sort of thing it would be like a rated R raunchy comedy type thing. Think of think of the hangover. Think of old school. 
So I'm writing something in that sort of vein. Uh, and when I, I've got something to share with y'all, I will do that. But it's very exciting. It's very exciting. It's an idea that really sort of writes itself. And I'm having a lot of fun, you know, going to my laptop every day, opening up Final Draft and adding to my to my script. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And I'm using some muscles that I haven't used in a while. And it just feels good to be creating something, not just enjoying things that others have created, but actually creating something out of my own mind. Um, and I'm also collaborating with a friend of mine because some of it's based loosely on, on actual experiences we've had. So uh, my buddy Greg and I are, have basically come up with the outline and I'm writing the script. So it's a lot of fun. It's collaborative. It's exciting. And uh, I can't wait to sort of watch this thing progress. Um, and also, before we get into the week's news and whatnot, just something I wanted to talk to you about this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever it is you get a chance to listen to this. Uh, there have been some phrases that have been getting thrown around a lot lately, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So with everything that's been going on with Lucasfilm and Star Wars and, and uh, even Warner Brothers and the DC Extended Universe and... You know, when it comes to franchise filmmaking, people like to throw around the phrase producer-driven as opposed to director-driven. So let, let, let's kind of get into that a little bit and also the idea of things, you know, the TV model. So when I refer to franchise filmmaking moving into the TV model, what I'm referring to is the same thing that people are referring to when they talk about producer-driven. See, TV series are not driven by a director. They're, they're, they're driven by a producer. And more often than not, every other episode is directed by someone different. And yet, when you watch a full season of a series, you don't tend to, you, you, you probably almost assume, oh, this is all the same person. Because you know, there's a cohesion, the way it looks, the way it feels. It'd be weird if episode two felt one way and episode three felt entirely different. And that's because of the whole, you know, that, that, that's how the TV model works. That's how, you know, the showrunner concept, the producer-driven concept works. The director works at the behest of the producers, uh, at the behest of the showrunners. The director comes in and they, they basically work within the established rules and tone and setting of the previous episodes that have come before it, and so that they could basically pass the baton to the, the director of the next episode. And for years that has worked in the, in the TV world, and what we're seeing now is that Hollywood is trying to bring that concept to films. And, you know, it, it's been very hit or miss. By and large, the most successful version of this, of this idea of taking the TV model and bringing it to Hollywood is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's not to say that the movies are all amazing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not commenting on the quality of the creative output, but I'm commenting on the ability to take that business model and bring it to the big screen. So Marvel's had a great you know, track record here in terms of they established right off the bat that this was going to be a large, sprawling story with lots of little moving parts that all make up one huge story. They're all part of the tapestry. And while there were some initial sort of growing pains, you know, they butted heads 
um, with you know John Favreau around Iron Man two, and there was some stuff there where you know Louis Leterrier and Edward Norton and 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 Kevin Feige all kind of had a wrestling match about the Incredible Hulk, you know, past Phase one really. Um, and you know, I, I guess some of this leaked into phase two, but past those initial few years, uh, Marvel's really kind of like hammered down all the different issues and now they've got it up and running where the directors come in. They know that they're not necessarily there to create something that is wholly unique and original to them. They're there really to serve the Marvel cinematic universe. They're there to, to, to get these characters where they need to be from point A to B to C to D to set up, you know, the next Avengers movie or to set up the next, you know, other team up movie. Um, and in that way, you know, Kevin Feige is like the showrunner. He's the one who's overseeing everything. And the directors come in with the understanding that they're working for him and they have to do this, you know, they have to do things his way. Um, and what's going on with Lucasfilm, you know, last week there was the whole big kerfluffle about Colin Trevorrow being the latest director to be canned from a Star Wars movie as Kathleen Kennedy now looks to bring in uh, safer bets and, and really kind of have a stronger grip over where the franchise is going. And, you know, I, th- I think what's going on there is very simple, you know, um, I think initially when they first bought Lucasfilm, Disney and Kathleen Kennedy thought, okay, we can try to do the auteur route. We can try to get exciting young filmmakers who are going to put their stamp on Star Wars. But I think they got in over their heads. I think they're realizing they would rather go the Marvel route. They would rather be able to have like, you know, we have full control of what's going on and where it's going. And we're going to hire directors who work for us, not directors who, who go and try to, you know, I'm going to go do my own thing with Star Wars. Um, so right now, you know, the, similar to what Marvel went through in those first few years as they were trying to work out the kinks on their model, I think that's all we're seeing here with Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm and all that sort of stuff. You know, they've brought in Abrams, who is going to play very nicely with Lucasfilm and do everything they want because, you know, he helped plant the seeds for The Force Awakens. He's, you know, he's the one who established sort of what the new Star Wars mold will be. So, you know, I I don't, I think that's why people aren't freaking out necessarily about what's going on in Star Wars land. Um, And I don't, you know, I really don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, whenever... Kennedy go you know calls in the cavalry to to sort of fix up one of these Star Wars movies. She goes to people who really know their shit, and the movies so far have been good. Um, so that's it. I, I just kind of wanted to explore, you know, expand upon that a little bit because it is unique and it is you know it, it's a sort of techno t- technical terminology that might go over the heads of someone. I want you guys to understand. You know, it is a very unique setting. The, the, the TV model is very weird you know, or very uh, different than movies have been traditionally. Um, you know, I remember when I, when I was working on the CBS series, The Good Wife, you know, I worked on every episode pretty much of season one and like 90% of the episodes of season two. And it was, it was interesting to see directors come and go and seeing how 
or if at all they were able to leave their own mark on the episode. And really, the, the, the most that I, I was ever able to pick up on was just the, the, like the mood on the set was the main thing that would change. There were some directors who were very easygoing, and they had a nice, easy rapport with the cast and the crew, and everything was very laid back. And then there were directors who were very sort of taskmasters and very detail-oriented, and you could tell the mood on the set was much more... Um, you know, uh, much more frantic and much more serious and, and, you know, um, but really, you know, beyond that, they all worked under the same umbrella and tried to create something that worked together as one big cohesive story. Um, and that's where I sort of learned that idea. Like, wow, this, so the directors in TV are really just, you know, they're, they're not, like the directors that we see in Hollywood who come in and shape the project around their vision. Um, and now it's just interesting to see that, you know, move into the Hollywood, you know, world. Um, which, by the way, I think is fine. Like I tweeted about a few days ago, I think it's totally acceptable for franchise filmmaking to go the way of TV. And then you allow the auteur directors, the ones who want to really sort of create their own thing... Let them make movies that are not franchise-oriented. You know, they can make the indie films. They can make those, you know, the, the standalone, interesting, just here's a story that doesn't have sequels or anything, you know, attached to it. It's not part of a comic book or a video game. You know, like a lot of the movies we're about to see, like American Made, like, uh, you know, that Mother that just came out last week. You know, just let, let, let the Darren Aronofsky's of the world do movies that are not related to franchises and let the people who work in the franchise world be the kind of directors who are fully able to do the TV thing where they work under someone. Um, but all right, I think I've yammered on and on about that enough. What say you we get to the week's news? weekend was certainly an interesting one at the box office. Coming in in first place, Stephen King's It Repeated. Yes, the film only cooled 51% as it pulled in another $60 million. To date, the $35 million film has made $372.3 million worldwide. 218.8 of that is domestic. 153.5 of that is foreign. And it is now a record-breaking film. It is the highest-grossing September release ever. Think about that. Not highest-grossing September R-rated movie. Not highest-grossing September horror movie. No, no, no. Period. Highest-grossing September release ever. That title belongs to Stephen King's It. Holy shit. Um, coming in second place, we had American Assassin. Uh, this was its premiere weekend. It made $14.8 million on 3,154 screens. That is, you know, that's a respectable opening for a movie that to me looked like it should have been straight to Netflix. Um, you know, it cost 33 mil to make. With that 14.8 and the 6 million it made 
in foreign markets. It now stands at 20.9 mil. I think it's definitely going to end up being profitable. Uh, you know, it got crappy reviews and it's probably not going to have great legs, but I think it'll leg out a decent profit. And like I said, for a film that did that looks like nothing special, that aside from having Michael Keaton on the poster, um, there's really nothing about it that screams that this even had to make it to theaters. Uh, you know, 14.8 mil is nothing to sneeze at. In third place, though, oof, this was the big clunker. Darren Aronofsky's mother! I'm sorry, I have to say it that loud because there's an exclamation point. So, Darren, Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky's... I'm just going to say that five times fast. Darren Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky. Taika Waititi, Taika Waititi. Taika. Okay, sorry, I'm off on a tangent. Um, Darren Aronofsky's mother opened up... To- <laughs> 7 million point five, 7.5 million. Hang on a second. What are you doing to me? Yeah, okay. Sorry. $7.5 million. Uh, listen, yeah, the other the story here is that the film got an F cinema score. This movie was hated by fans. Fans never give Fs. It's very, very rare. So that means that Mother must have been extraordinarily bad if fans didn't like it. And review uh, critics weren't much nicer. You know, sometimes there's that divide, you know, that little divide where, all right, you know, listen, the critics loved it. The fans didn't. Maybe it was just, you know, something went over their heads or whatever. No, everyone pretty much universally you know, was not too high on this movie. You know, fans gave it an F. Critics gave it, you know, a tepid praise of 68%. Um, This movie, it's interesting what happened here. It looks like, you know, they decided to go wide with a film that probably should have been more of like a small little art house release. You know, it looks like, you know, with Darren Aronofsky involved and the the concept of the film itself and the storytelling conceit that he chose, this thing probably would have been best off playing at little indie theaters, at little artsy movie theaters and film festivals, and maybe see if it grows from there. But the problem is it costs too much to make. You know, those kinds of little movies don't usually cost $30 million. So Paramount said, all right, listen, we know we have a sort of troubled movie here where the critics are not 100% sold on it and the people who are seeing it are not really liking it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go wide. We're going to go wide and hopefully we can tap into Jennifer Lawrence's X-Men appeal, Jennifer Lawrence's Hunger Games appeal, and we'll make our bank that way. By just saying, hey, look, here's a Jennifer Lawrence movie. It looks kind of spooky. You guys are into spooky stuff right now. Enjoy this. And it just didn't work. You know, it's a $30 million, basically, art house indie film. And with an F cinema score, that's a huge turkey. And it's 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 just going to sink further and further into oblivion in the coming weeks. Because there's some rather large films that are about to open that probably you're not going to get a fucking F cinema score. So sorry, mother, but uh, it didn't work. I'm sorry, Paramount, it didn't work. I know you thought going wide would increase your chances. Instead, all you did was invite a very big audience to come see 
what was apparently a pretty crappy movie. In fourth place, there was Home Again uh, with $5.1 million. Uh, in fifth place, you had The Hitman's Bodyguard with $3.5 bucks. And then, uh, you know, other notables just in terms of ones we've been tracking here. Um, Spider-Man Homecoming is still hanging on in the top 10. It pulled in another $1.8 million. Rounding out the top 10 was Dunkirk with 1.3 mil. And nowhere to be seen in the top 10. Now, you know, now sadly, in 12th position is Logan Lucky. Um, I say sadly because I love Steven Soderbergh. And because it has such a great cast. And it just, you know, I, I, I see it being phased out so quickly already. You know, I really wanted to see it, but like now it's only playing in like four theaters in the New York area. Like that's how quickly this thing has dropped. Um, so Logan Lucky is, 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 you know, and the reviews are so good for it. It just, for some reason, Logan Lucky did not pull off the baby driver thing and suddenly grow. Um, and then there's, you know, Wonder Woman is still, you know, it's, it's still in the conversation in 16th place, despite being out for 16 weeks. Um, it pulled in another 667,000 bucks. It's only on 659 screens, by the way. So Wonder Woman is still, it's just, you know, she's still one of the great successes of this summer of this year with a worldwide haul of $818.9 million. Um, you know, in terms of the DC Extended Universe, she's number one domestically. Um, and in terms of just like, you know, DC Comics movies, she's in third place behind only The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, you know, these are domestic totals, by the way. If we were to go, you know, if we were to count the worldwide, it's a different story. Batman v Superman still stands above her um, in terms of, you know, just uh, general DC Comics releases. And naturally, people are talking about sequels and what is Patty Jenkins going to do with Wonder Woman 2 now that she's officially signed on. Um, and there are some comments from the director about that. So, you know, earlier this year, we heard stuff about the movie being set in the 80s, being set in America, uh, possibly having to do with the Cold War. You know, the, the last time that America and Russia uh, had an interesting relationship with one another. And um, now there's some, you know, she, she shed a little more light. She will not confirm that aspect of it. But here's what she did say. She said, I'm excited for her to come to America and become the Wonder Woman we are all familiar with from having grown up around her as an American superhero. I'd like to bring her a little farther into the future and have a fun, exciting storyline that is its own thing. Wonder Woman 1 is so much about her becoming the person she is. I can't wait to spring forward with who she is and have another great standalone superhero film. Interesting, right? <laughs> Two different times she references it being its own thing and being a great standalone superhero film. This all sort of ties into what's going on with the DC Extended Universe in terms of how they're going to tackle this whole situation of either being producer-driven or being filmmaker-driven. Um, you know, up until now, they've been very filmmaker-driven, uh, you know, but the issue has been, you know, the, the filmmaker they chose for the first few, 
you know, was not really creating things that were crossing over and, and, and having a wide appeal or bringing in the kind of uh, box office receipts and critical reception that Warner Brothers had been hoping for. And that person was Zack Snyder. Um, but now, you know, the, the, there was talk, there was consideration that maybe they were going to move to more like the producer driven angle that they were going to have Jeff John sort of become like the Kevin Feige or become like the showrunner of the DC Extended Universe. Instead, Warner Brothers seems to actually be trying to stay the course. They seem to, more than anything, want to just change which filmmaker they're putting all their support behind. Uh, maybe not have one person you know, leave such a huge imprint on what the franchise looks and feels like. Um, because, you know, she also had another interesting comment, uh, did Jenkins, about what excites her about the DC Extended Universe. And she's, you know, she, in discussing it, she said, there are a lot of great filmmakers around the DC Universe, and there are a lot of great characters. My favorite thing about the DC Universe is some of these characters have been the greatest, most original superheroes for decades. I think there's just exciting things to be done with them ahead and lots of different people that I'm excited about seeing. All of us are very different and we're all going to do different things. So I can't wait to see the variety personally. Um, so, you know, she, as someone who's very intimately connected to the situation, is out there espousing this, this belief that, you know, Warner Brothers and, and the, the folks running the DC uh, Entertainment are really going to be embracing these heroes in their own unique way in terms of, you know, the, the, they're bringing in original storytellers to sort of, you know, tell these, these interesting standalone tales, um, and, you know, and that is a little different than sort of, you know, what they were going for initially. You know, initially, they, they started things off practically with a team-up movie. You know, Batman v Superman was a team-up movie where they brought Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman together. They planted the seeds for all these other movies. They introduced The Flash and Aquaman and Cyborg. You know, then you know, they had Suicide Squad, which was a team-up film. Um, then they had Wonder Woman, and then that was supposed to lead right into Justice League, which was another team-up film. So it's weird. You know, it, it's, it's a very unique sort of situation they carved out for themselves and probably a bit of a conundrum where they hired, you know, they, they wanted all these filmmakers to be able to do their own thing, but they also wanted to start things off with a whole cavalcade of team-up movies where all these characters are going to appear in standalone films by these other directors. But meanwhile, Snyder is the one in control of planting all, you know, laying down all the groundwork for what was going to come. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, he was inadvertently poisoning the well because people were not taking to these films in, in the way that Warner Brothers had hoped. So it's, it's a very sort of unique setup, but I feel like we're, we're learning more and more with each passing week we're learning their, you know, what their strategy is going to be. Earlier this year, you know, it really seemed like, you know, or people just had assumed, myself included, had assumed that Jeff Johns was going to be the boss man. He was going to be the Feige and everyone would answer to him and they were going to start hiring directors who, who were better at playing well with others, who were going to be, you know, basically kind of, you know, follow his blueprint, his, his, his architecture. But instead... 
All they're really doing is moving away from Snyder, but keeping the same concept of fil- you know uh, filmmaker-driven stories, where they get to do their own sort of standalone tales based on these iconic heroes. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they do that. It really is. It's going to be interesting to see how they pull that off, considering you know the origins have already been sort of set in stone of these new cinematic versions of the characters via Batman v Superman and via the upcoming Justice League. Um, it's going to be very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, and, and you got Matt Reeves, who's also been basically, you know, banging the same drum that Jenkins is now banging about how his Batman film or films are, are going to be sort of you know, set apart. Yes, they're part of the general DC landscape, and there will be some interconnectivity, but the reason he, he signed on, the way Warner Brothers got him to agree to sign on, was he gets to do it his way, the same way Jenkins gets to do Wonder Woman her way. Um, and this is where, you know, this is where you start to play Monday morning quarterback and start to question the way that DC started off this whole extended universe. You know, because I was never one of those people who was against the idea of starting off with a team-up movie. You know, um, you know, I know that technically Man of Steel started us off, but really what, what served as the launch pad for the whole universe was Batman v Superman. And a lot of people shit all over that idea. A lot of people wanted them to copy the Marvel molds of give everyone standalone films, introduce us to Ben Affleck's Batman first, and then we'll care more about what happens in Dawn of Justice and yada, yada, yada. I've always said that that idea is, is, is unnecessary and that concept is overrated. I, you know, I, I've, I've always been a big defender that you can do this right. There's a way to do this right. But now, with the benefit of hindsight... You know, if they really wanted to go this way and let each filmmaker really leave their mark on these characters and make a stamp on them, uh, then perhaps a team-up way was not the way to go. You know, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. If you're going to hire filmmakers who are going to create their own standalone stories but you're going to have them have to work within the confines of what some other filmmaker created, then you are, you know, you're asking something that's unfair. Um, and you're also giving the audiences, you know, the, these, these impressions of the characters that may not even stick because future filmmakers are going to come in and sort of revamp them. So it's just, you know, I, I, I stand by my, my, my defense of the DCEU in terms of starting off with team-up films was not uh, inherently a bad call. But I don't know. I, I feel like they should have considered all this stuff uh, before they, they, they pulled the trigger on all this. Perhaps they should have gotten all their filmmaking uh, ducks in a row first before releasing these movies. In other words, have, have Zack Snyder and Jenkins and other directors basically working together from the outset as opposed to having Snyder be the architect and creating these molds that now are sort of like uh, being broken and, 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 and were sort of restrictions for other filmmakers they wanted to hire. Um, 
Very interesting stuff there. Um, you know, while we're, you know, Matt Reeves, as we know, you know, he's making his Batman movies. And there, there's been some interesting new reports about the canceled Batman script. Um, basically, this week we started hearing about the script that Affleck had been working on with Jeff Johns and uh, that got rewritten by Chris Terrio. And apparently it was going to be very much like David Fincher's The Game. It was going to be sort of that sort of cat and mouse detective story thriller thing where Batman is, is basically trying to solve a crime where he's, you know, and Deathstroke is out there, played by Joe Manganiello, creating traps for Batman and, and, and making his life very difficult. Uh, honestly, it sounds sort of like they were really going to be adapting or, or taking their cues from the uh, Arkham Origins game, where Batman and Deathstroke have, have a couple of major standoffs and it's all about, like, you know, Batman uh, trying to solve a crime and, and, and dealing with all of these little things that are occurring along the way. It's a, it's a very sort of self-contained story. Um, I don't know how I would have felt about that. I'm surprised that it would have stuck so much to that video game. Um, but either way, you know, the, the, that story has been, has been dumped. Uh, and Matt Reeves is going to be creating his own thing. The, the rumor now is that, you know, that they're going to start filming next summer, summer 2018 for a release in 2019. Right now, Reeves is working on the script. I'm sure they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do about the Ben Affleck situation. Uh, obviously, he's going to do the film. But, you know, if they're trying to set this up to have a bunch of sequels, they have to figure out, is he going to stick around for all the sequels or is he going to pass the baton to someone else? And do they do that in a story driven way or do they do it in a just sort of, all right, just another actor's, you know, playing him sort of way. So they have to figure that out. But I can exclusively share with you guys here uh, something that, you know, I, I'm not sure is public knowledge, but, you know, earlier this year. They were trying to get this movie filmed. Um, you know, actors, I remember Jeremy Irons was quoted as talking about them starting in the spring. And a lot of people eventually thought maybe that was wrong or whatever. He was wrong or he was mistaken. I'm here to tell you that he was actually spot on. Uh, that really was the plan. The Ben Affleck directed, starring, written The Batman movie was going to film this past April. Uh, Warner Brothers was doing everything it could. They, they, they actually started setting aside sound stages in their, you know, in their Burbank studios to start filming the damn thing. Um, and this is despite the fact that Affleck was going through some personal issues. You know, he had rehab and he was dealing with the divorce and he was just going through his own sort of issues. Uh, and then creatively, you know, the script wasn't where he wanted it to be. There was all kinds of stuff going on. But Warner Brothers, as of earlier this year, was trying to push forward. They were going to rush this puppy into production. I can I can state that unequivocally as fact. They had started they they had, they had started lining up what the schedule would be, setting you know, getting the sound stages in line. Where is he going to film it and creating that sort of stuff? Uh, earlier this year, that was the plan. And then all of that got thrown into the trash 
when he decided I can't, you know, I'm not going to direct this anymore. I mean, you can't force my hand into this. And the situation sort of came to a head. And the whole thing is still just sort of, you know, kind of combustible when you think of the, uh, of the fact that you know, there were reports that they were going to try to get the Batman under Matt Reeves into production by the start of next year. And now, the, you know, now that's been pushed into the summer of next year. And, you know, you got to imagine that there are more conversations happening there where Matt Reeves is telling the studio, listen, I know I know you guys really want to get a Batman movie into production here, but do not rush me. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to do this my way. So let's just see, you know, hopefully things work out better for Reeves than they did uh, with Affleck at the helm. And hopefully he's given all the time he needs to make this, uh, you know, a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, his war for the Planet of the Apes has had a huge opening in China, which probably helps Reeves' clout in this situation. Uh, you know, the movie is, is doing very well now. You know, it, it was sort of, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a moderate hit here in the States. But now that it's got the, the foreign totals coming in, now that it's opening in wider release and in, 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 you know, overseas, um, the movie's becoming a real win for Fox, and it's making Reeves seem more and more like someone who is a force to be reckoned with, whose opinion and creative input should be valued, because clearly he's doing something that's connecting with audiences. Uh, and he's not just doing that, but he's also getting you know critical responses. You know, he's getting... He's bringing prestige to a, the Planet of the Apes series that most had thought was dead. So I'm sure Warner Brothers is looking at how well War for the Planet of the Apes is doing now and going, all right, listen, you know, Matt, do what you got to do. We're going to stand by you here. Um, while we're still on the subject of, of DC Entertainment, our friend over at Batman on Film, Bill Jett Ramey, uh, has an interesting sort of outlook on what's going on with Justice League that I wanted to share with you guys. It's one that I hadn't necessarily thought of. Um, but while discussing whether or not the film would be delayed, because every once in a while you hear about that, you know, since, since the reshoots have been fairly extensive, um, and people are wondering, you know, what's going to happen if, if, if the film isn't ready yet? Are they going to delay? Are they going to give Whedon more time? All this sort of stuff. And he had an interesting take. So here's what, he, uh, here's what he had to say. He said, yes, it probably would be good for the film overall if the release date was a tad later than November 17th. Of course, the only way for that to happen would be to change it. With that, folks, we arrive at the bottom line. Will it actually happen? Nope, it will not. And it's not because Warner Brothers fears a PR catastrophe, there wouldn't be one, but likely because they are ready to just rip the Band-Aid off, as opposed to pulling it off slowly. In other words, let's get this thing here over with and move on to the DCEU 2.0. So... It's an interesting idea. You know, I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, but it does actually make sense to me. Um, you know, they know that in Justice League, they have a sort of flawed film. It's sort of the, the, the last vestige of the Snyder era of the DCEU. And they've poured plenty of time and resources and creative energy into making it as good as it can be. 
But really, at this point, you know, unless they're going to actually just go back from scratch and redo the whole movie with a new director, they're best off just like, this is going to be as good as it gets. Let's just get this thing as good as it can be, and they just get it done with so that we can move on freshly into the the newer direction that we're heading in, Um, rather than drag this thing out. Because really, the only way to fix the issues at this point would be if you were to do just like a full on, we're redoing the entire damn movie. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a losing proposition at this point, put it out. It'll still make a sizable amount of money because it's justice league and the DC films, even the ones that have been reviled by, by critics that have been received. So, so by fans have done very well financially. So no matter what, this thing will make some money and then moving forward, they can just kind of have a you know a clean slate as opposed to making the dragging this Justice League situation on and on. Um, and you know, in terms of DCEU 2.0, you know, Shazam has now been in the headlines lately because it looks like the film is going to be entering production in that very same slot where it was once rumored that Batman would be entering production. Uh, There are reports going around now that Shazam is going to start filming towards the beginning of next year, and that in the last few weeks, screen testing has begun for who's going to be playing Shazam. Um, So, you know, what's interesting about these reports about Shazam is, you know, in in, in an exclusive report from Movie Hole, who, by the way, Movie Hole was was the first site that hired me to be a writer, that they were sort of my my entrance into this world of fanboy writing and and commentating. Um, The script by Henry Gaiden, they kind of, you know, Movie Hole offers up an impression of it that, you know, I don't think has really been been, uh, spread around all that much. People focused... About you know, on the on the fact that the screen tests were happening, but not really on Movie Hole's impression of the Henry Gaiden script. Uh, here's how they described the Shazam script. They say uh, it has a beautifully balanced tone of superhero adventure antics and welcome humor, much in the same way both Ant Man and Spider Man Homecoming did. Um, he says the cheeky dialogue and the likable nature of Batson's crucial emotional arc uh, will likely make whoever plays Batson's, you know, whoever plays him, it'll make that actor's career because the way it's written, he's just uh, he's a likable and endearing and emotional character. Um, so, hey, you know, it, it, that that's just something worth noting that it looks like Shazam is going to be like the sort of action comedy route that like Ant-Man and Spider-Man Homecoming sort of were. And Spider-Man Homecoming, you know, it had an emotional heart to it. So if Shazam is going to be like the Spider-Man Homecoming of the DCEU, I'm all in. I'm all in. You know, and there's also those rumors, the rumors of of John Cena uh, screen testing for the role. I don't know that any of that's been confirmed. I just find it funny because a whole bunch of months ago when this project was first being discussed, um, you know, I had pitched John Cena in a column when I was doing my fantasy casting with uh, my buddy Jeremy Scully. I said it'd be. I, I first of all, I could see him totally in the in that role, and it would just be funny for me on a sort of meta level when he eventually crosses paths with Black Adam, because then you got John Cena versus The Rock 
again in a very, very uh, different setting this time. But, uh, you know, so Shazam could be interesting. It could be interesting. Uh, I like hearing that it's not going to be all self-serious. Uh, even the, the, the working title is uh, kind of fun in, a, in its own way. The, right now, the working title for where they're, where they're getting ready to set up shop in Toronto, they're calling the movie Franklin, like Benjamin Franklin. And as we all know, Billy Batson, you know, one, of, one of Shazam's superpowers is being able to manipulate lightning, kind of like Benjamin Franklin. So it's kind of like a perfect title. It, just, it seems like this film could be uh, just exactly what a Shazam movie should be. So that's rather exciting. Uh, and the rumors still continue to persist that Black Adam will not be introduced in Shazam but rather he will make his first DCEU appearance in Man of Steel 2. Like, that seems to be the going plan. Um, I'm very intrigued by that. You know, I, I would love to see Dwayne Johnson as Black Adam, finally, after all these years of hearing about him taking on the role. And seeing him throw down versus Superman, uh, bring it on. You know, as you guys know, or as you should know, Henry Cavill and Johnson are represented by the same agent. It's actually Dwayne Johnson's, uh, same manager. Uh, it's Dwayne Johnson's ex-wife, Danny Garcia. And you know, they, they've kind of hinted and, and, and implied on social media that Superman and Black Adam were going to throw down. And I just got to think that would be, uh, that'd be a hell of a good time to watch. And I feel like that would be a good villain for Superman that we have not yet seen. Because, you know, on top of my other critiques of Man of Steel, I was always sort of underwhelmed by the whole General Zod thing. Like, we've already done Zod. You know, he has a bigger rogues gallery than this. Let's not have to do Zod again. Uh, and say, so, yeah, now we got Lex Luthor. Like, I, I'm ready for, for a new type of villain. Black Adam, I think, would be awesome for Man of Steel 2. You know what else I think would be awesome for Man of Steel 2? Matthew fucking Vaughn directing it, I think, would be awesome for Man of Steel 2. Um, yesterday, the Kingsman director was, uh, you know, he, he made some comments about what his ideal, you know, movie would be. What his ideal Superman movie would look and feel like. And it spoke right to me, shockingly. So let me tell you sort of what, you know, the direction he would want to go in. And then we'll discuss a little bit. He said, weirdly, <laughs> weirdly, if I do Superman, and I made the mistake of telling someone yesterday, I've spoken about it, and then wallop, uh, I think my main take would be, it's really boring, but make a Superman film. I just don't feel a proper Superman. I, I think Donner did it to perfection for that time. Just doing the modern. I want to do a modern version of the Donner version. Go back to the source material. For me, Superman is color, feel-good, heroic. He's a beacon of light in darkness. And that's what I think Superman should be. Now, let's analyze this just a tad. Uh, some people are getting very, very literal in the way they're taking that. Uh, they're saying, what? He wants to just do the Donner version again? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. You know, he, he's, he specifies that your Donner did it to perfection for that time. 
he specifies for that time. And what he wants to do is something that feels like that, but for our time, something that feels perfect for this current world that we live in. That doesn't mean that he's just going to go and and try to just ape the Donner version. He wants to take the elements that work so well there and try to be for, you know, the current world, what that movie was for the world that it came out in. Um, You know, and there are people who are going, you know, that they want to deride him and say, oh, well, didn't Brian Singer already try to do that and he failed? And it's like, well, no, not really. You know, Brian Singer... What he did in, in, in Superman Returns, his love letter to the Donner films, um, he didn't really try to update the character. He didn't try to modernize the character. He tried to literally be like, this is the same Reeve Superman. But oddly enough, he didn't bring in the feel good. He didn't bring in the color. You know, as much as I enjoyed Superman Returns and as special a place in my heart as that film will hold, uh, that film was more so about you know, he, he focused on the gloomier aspects of what Donner brought to the mythology. You know, he, he focused on, on the isolation of, of Superman, uh, of the idea of I will never be one of them. And the, the sort of, you know, the, the burden of, of having to be world's greatest savior when maybe all you want to do is, is, is go kiss the girl and live a normal life and, and, and raise a family and just be that farm boy all grown up. You know, Singer really uh, attached himself to that idea of being feeling sort of isolated and different from everyone else. And that's what he made Superman Returns about. But he really didn't have that, you know, the colorful, feel good, optimistic, heroic beacon of light thing all that much in Superman Returns. So if if Vaughn wants to do something like that, you know, listen, I'm totally up for it. Uh, I think he's. Uh, I think he's a very, very capable filmmaker. Um, you know, I think he's done. You know, he, he's tackled a number of different styles, and I just think you know his his heart's in the right place here. Um, so I, I kind of really hope he gets the job. And uh, for those of you who are freaking out because they think he wants to literally just do the the Donner Superman again. I think you're reading things way too literally there. You know, he he wants to make he wants to have a film that has a similar impact on people in twenty twenty, whenever it comes out, as it had in nineteen seventy eight. Just a similar impact of this character who makes you feel good, a character who's heroic and symbolic and inspires good warm feelings of heroism and optimism. Um and while we're talking about Mr. Vaughn, uh, you know, Kingsman 2 comes out this weekend and the early buzz on it is decidedly mixed. Uh, you know, the first film wasn't, by the way, it wasn't a runaway smash with critics either. The first Kingsman got a 76%, which is positive, but, you know, nothing overwhelmingly great. And Kingsman 2 seems to be, so far, with only 29 reviews in, it's at 62%. So definitely mixed. And I have a feeling that as more reviews pour in, we're going to move down into the 50s here. It's just a hunch. Um, but yesterday on Twitter, I was asked by a frequent commenter and listener, uh, Aaron Verola, what I think the film is going to do financially. Um, and, or maybe it was Tabo. I don't know. It was one of you, one of you guys who's awesome. And then, uh, does, does the Twittering with me. 
uh, you know, what, what do I project the film is going to open at? Some of the initial tracking suggests it's going to open around $45 million, which is what Aaron thinks it's going to do. I actually disagree. I have, a, I have a sinking suspicion that this film is going to disappoint. Uh, I have a sinking suspicion that it is going to struggle to make it to 40. Uh, the original Kingsman, when it came out, opened at around 36 million, if memory serves. And this one, you know, I, I, I just, I don't see this one opening that much bigger. In fact, my, my initial hunch is that the law of diminishing returns is going to swallow this one up and that it's actually going to open more around 30. But I don't want to go quite that gloomy on it. I think it'll be somewhere around 38 or 39, uh, especially if the reviews remain this sort of tepid. And the reason I think that is because while there are a bunch of people like myself who thought King, the first Kingsman was a, was a great surprise, um... And I really, you know, it was a pleasant surprise and I enjoyed the hell out of it. There were a lot of people who didn't really buy into it, too. You know, there were a fair amount of people who saw that movie and were sort of grossed out by the vulgarity, who weren't really into the stylized violence, who didn't really buy into the world, who weren't all that interested in it. And that's why I, I, I don't know, I just, I have this, I have this feeling that it is not going to live up to that $45 million tracking. I think it's going to struggle to come up to 40 and just sort of die at or about 40 or 39 million. That is my projection for Kingsman, the Golden Circle. Um, then <laughs> it's gonna, the, the, there's no proper sequitur for this, so I'm not going to try to force one. But um, there, there, there's news now that Captain Marvel... Looks like she's going to be uh, officially in Avengers 4. And granted, I reported about this a long time ago. They, that, that seemed to have always been the plan. But now there's pictures of her on the set of Avengers 4. So that pretty much puts to rest any, any speculation about that. It looks like Brie Larson's, uh, you know, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, will be introduced in her solo movie, which comes out after Avengers 3. And she will factor in to Avengers 4. Uh, Taika Waititi, my favorite name to say, uh, shared something yesterday, this awesome video made by Nerdist that I just wanted to say, if you guys haven't seen it yet, you absolutely should. Uh, the director of Thor Ragnarok was tickled by this sort of uh, fan service that was just created for his film. Uh, it looks, you know, they, they make it look like it had Thor 3 Ragnarok come out in the 80s what the trailer would have looked like and it it's so well done it is so well done and it's not just a matter of like making it look grainy or 80s ish there is some awesome work that went into really making this feel like an 80s project i don't want to spoil it for you but when you have a chance go check out the nerdist video uh for thor 3 um also in the in the, in the realm of marvel uh, you know, we, we found out a little bit more about the Punisher series on Netflix starring John Bernthal. Um, you know, when, when asked about how this, you know, the character was going to differ in the series as opposed to what we saw in Daredevil 2, uh, here's what Bernthal told SFX magazine. He said, you saw him in Daredevil where he is pretty brutal and pretty dark. 
But on that show, he was always on a mission. You only got to see 25% of who he was. And it was the guy who was always killing. He was an antagonist, not the protagonist. Um, and he basically reveals that, you know, for the conceit of this story, of this season, is going to be that it's going to be lots of flashbacks. There's going to be lots of stuff from his past that kind of shows, gives us a greater, you know, uh, uh, perspective and scope about who um, Frank Castle is and how he came to be this way. Um so, you know, it, 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 to me, it sounds almost like they're going to go like the Arrow route, you know, the, the first couple seasons of Arrow, which I've never seen, by the way. I just know that this was their big conceit, which was the idea of, you know, there's probably going to be one main storyline that is set in the present day, but flashbacks are going to do a lot of the character building. Every episode will probably center on a flashback or something that kind of helps uh, makes us understand where he is at this stage of the game. Um, he says, We carry on in a way that fans of the character will be satisfied by, but we're also showing the other 75% of the character, enriching him and making the human side more present. So it sounds like he's going to be a little more of a good guy this time. You know, he, he feels like. Uh, in Daredevil, you know, when, as much as we all loved him, he really was represented more as a, as a misunderstood bad guy rather than an anti-hero. And it sounds like this time they're going to go more into that anti-hero sort of mold, really kind of make him full on a good guy. Um, so that sounds pretty good. I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about Josh Brolin as Cable. Uh, he posted a picture on his Instagram of himself in character as Cable. Very intense. He's like shouting into a mirror. And it just looks like, you know, I, I just, I, I th that honestly, I, I've been sort of sleeping on Deadpool 2. I think Deadpool 2 has the potential to be pretty goddamn awesome. So here's hoping that I'm right about that. And it is as awesome as it could be. But yeah, that image is kind of like haunting in a way. Uh, if you have not seen it yet, go check out Josh Brolin's Instagram. Uh, and there are a lot of interesting images this week. You know, yesterday they released the poster for Tomb Raider where Alicia Vikander's neck seems to be like 13 inches long. Uh, terrible Photoshop job there. Um, but then there was also in the past week, we also got to be we got to see David Harbour as Hellboy. And that looks pretty goddamn sick, you know. The, I, I like I said on Twitter, you know, my initial take on it was it looks a lot like Ron Perlman, and I'm surprised how little it looks like David Harbor. Um, I guess I was sort of expecting to see more of Harbor's face with just some prosthetics on, whereas it looks like they're kind of burying Harbor under all this makeup, so he's unrecognizable. Um, but aside from, you know, that choice by the designers and by the filmmakers, he looks sick. Uh, Harbor got into some good shape. I'm sure some of that is, you know, uh, digital enhancement and, and, and some, you know, maybe, uh, some body paint that is painted to make him look a little extra chiseled, but he looks like a beast. So Hellboy looks sick. And you know what else looks sick? Halloween, baby. Last week, I was talking all about Halloween, how excited I am about the fact that it's not going to be another reboot, that it really is. It's going to attempt to pick up the pieces from the original Carpenter films, and it's just going to basically wipe the slate clean of the later sequels. 
uh, by you know that that the 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 director had said that he'd shown the script to John Carpenter and Carpenter had given him some notes. He's even trying to get Carpenter to score the film. They've got Jamie Lee Curtis involved, and then like the very next day after I released last week's episode, Jamie Lee Curtis tweeted out an image of herself in her original Laurie Strode costume. It's standing in a very moody shot on a porch with Michael looming in the in an open doorway, waiting for her with a butcher knife in hand. And it just it's an awesome shot. It's it's very iconic. It's instantly iconic. And I just cannot wait for Halloween, um, which is supposed to enter production this fall to come out next October in time for Halloween. So uh, I think it would be kind of cool if they did a thing where they just call it like Halloween three or something. Yeah, just something, you know, something that, that, that makes that conveys to fans that the, you know, w- w- this really is a true follow up to what Carpenter did in uh, one and two. Um, yeah, that was badass. And by the way, you know, there's also news that. Uh, Friday the 13th is getting another remake. You know, earlier this year, there was going to be one entering production, and then that got scrapped. But now it looks like Paramount has picked up the rights, and they're they're planning on making a, a you know, Friday the 13th remake that is set to release in 2020. Uh, something about it lining up with the 40th anniversary of the series. Uh, I got to go on record as saying I never understood what all the hate was for the last reboot, uh, the one in 2009. I mean, granted, I only saw it the once in theaters. Maybe if I watch it again, I'll see why everyone hated it so much. But I feel like it's become very popular to just shit all over that movie. I don't know. I thought the last reboot was fine. I, I really, I mean, I know it was a bit of a rehash, but it was a remake. It was meant to sort of you know, reestablish the Jason lore. It didn't, you know, it, it really was a remake of the first film. So what did you expect? You know, did you think they were going to go in a completely new and different way? I don't know. I just never understood why people shit all over the last Friday the 13th remake. But all right, you know, th- there's another reboot coming, apparently. And uh, we'll see. You know, I-, I was always more of a Michael Myers guy than a Jason guy. But hey, the more the merrier. Bring on more epic horror movies. That's that does it for me. Um, then what do we got here? Yeah, there's some crazy news, by the way. Circling back to Narcos, uh, a week ago, a, a a location scout for season four was murdered in Mexico, and it's unbelievable. Um, I can't believe it. Yeah, you know, it, it's like it's it's ripped from the show. It feels like a storyline of the damn show where he got too close to the drug lords. They didn't appreciate him sniffing around, and they found him with a bunch of bullets in him in a car on the on the side of the road. Um, and now you've got Pablo Escobar's brother uh, advising, urging Netflix to be more careful. Uh, you know, through a spokesperson of Escobar Inc. Uh, they release a statement where they say people are dying. It's clearly not safe to film shows about drug lords. Uh, that's sort of ominous. But it's just a crazy story. By the way, you know, so, you know, uh, my condolences to the family of Carlos Munoz Portal, who's the man who died. And it's just crazy that this, you know, we live in a world where this happens. 
Um, and I wonder now how Narcos goes forward. You know, what are they going to do? Are they going to maybe move to another location, maybe pick a place that that can stand in for Mexico, but maybe not actually be there? Because, you know, it looks like they were trying to get way too close to where the actual action is. You know, the, the vehicle was, sound, was found on an unnamed dirt road in San Bartolo, Actopan, which is part of the municipality of Temas... How the hell do you say that? Temascalapa. Uh, the site is located very close to the border with Hidalgo, which is notorious for drug-related homicides. So it's like they were going right to the source of a lot of this violence and got the, you know, this, uh, there's a man is dead now. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know what they're going to do about that, but it's, 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 it's a weird time. It, it's a weird thing to sort of realize how like fact and fiction are sort of, you know, merging. They're merging here. You know, they're doing a show about drug lords, violent drug lords who are ruthless and one of their own location scouts was just murdered for getting too close to the action. Um, uh, it gives me goosebumps, man. That's insanity. Um, but uh, I think that's it, boys and girls. I think that's... Uh, I'm going to close out this 31st episode of El Fanboy. Thank you so much for, for listening to me this week. If you have any questions, please tweet them out to hashtag LFanboy. And you can find me on Twitter at I underscore M underscore MFR. There's also the official LFanboy podcast Twitter account, which is all, you know, it's at LFanboy podcast. There's also the MFR LFanboy Facebook page. Go like over there. Um, and that's it. Until next week. Adiós.